Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Romans chapter 14. You can turn there if you want, but we're really only going to look at the first verse or two before we start looking at a lot of other stuff because you have to understand the culture and the background into which Paul is writing these words. It is common to hear among church folk, among theologians, you will hear That orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. All that really means is good solid teaching, good doctrinal teaching leads to good practice, good behavior. And that's what we've been seeing so far in the book of Romans. Paul has already laid out the good doctrine. He has laid out the doctrine of God's election, God's predestinary will. He has already told us that all human beings are sinners and that Jesus Christ is the only way that anybody can be saved, that salvation is a matter of faith, not of works, and that no one can be justified by the law. And then he gave us three whole chapters of God's faithfulness to Israel. And behind all of that orthodox doctrine, he then launched into Now, knowing that, how should you live? How should you behave? And chapter 14 is really going to get into how you should behave. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Accept the one who is weak in faith. And that's really what this whole morning is going to be about. Accepting the one who is weak in faith. Now, when he says accept that one... He's not saying just believe anything they happen to say. He's not saying if they bring in a false doctrine. A moment ago, we just heard Steve reading from the book of Galatians and Paul saying, if anyone brings any other teaching than what you've already received, let him be anathema. So clearly Paul is not contradicting himself. What he means when he says accept that one is he's saying accept them into your assembly. Bring them into the church because where else are they going to learn orthodox sound doctrine unless they are sitting under the regular teaching of the word. So accept that person into the body of believers but then right away Paul has to add this contingency but don't accept the one who is weak in faith for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions that Greek word is dialogismos it's the word from which we get dialogue so it means talking back and forth monologue one person talking dialogue two more people talking and so he is saying accept The person who is weak in faith, he's going to describe for us, and we're going to understand by the end of this morning what it is to be weak in faith. 
accept the one who is weak in faith, accept him into the body of believers, but don't do that for the purpose of passing judgment on his dialogue. Of course he's going to say something different than you. He's weak in faith. Of course he's going to have a different opinion, a different approach than you. He's weak in faith. The one thing you're going to see consistently here, though, is Paul is going to say, you who are strong in the faith, you who are convinced that Christ is the full sufficient Savior, you who are convinced that you are no longer under the dictates of the law, those of you who have that freedom in Christ, don't let a weaker brother into your assembly for the sole purpose of making fun of the weaker brother. What you're going to see consistently is you that are strong in faith ought to reach down to the weaker brother. In fact, Paul is going to say that you that are stronger should even curb your own behavior in order to accommodate the weakness of the weaker brother. Now that's totally in keeping with everything else we know about Paul's teaching. I keep saying it, I keep stressing it. I don't know if it has really infiltrated our heads yet so that we really comprehend the depth to which Paul says things like, look after the things of another and don't just worry about your own stuff. When he says to consider others as better than yourself, He's really genuinely expecting that we who are strong in the faith are going to accommodate, are going to reach down to, are going to come alongside, are going to help out the weaker brethren. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong, he's talking about strong in the faith, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Should I emphasize that verse again for the online theologues? There is a tremendous amount of online condemnation right now among those who feel like they have reached some sort of pinnacle of the faith that allows them to look down on anyone else who's weaker in the faith or who doesn't understand the faith as well. And here Paul says, we who are strong in the faith ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Not just egocentrically build ourselves up, look at me. I'm the one who really knows some stuff and therefore I can condemn everybody else. That again is the inverse of what Paul is saying. Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So why are you accepting the one who is weak in faith in your assembly? You're accepting them into the assembly not so that you can pass judgment on them, but for their good, which will lead to their edification, because as I just said, (laughs) orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So to understand what Paul means by weak in faith, we have to kind of back up, and like I said, we have to kind of look at the the larger context in which he is writing this, because he's writing it to Rome. 
And as we've told you repeatedly, there are two churches in Rome. There's a gathering of saints that are Gentiles, and there's a gathering of Jewish saints. And they still have a history of being opposed to one another. In fact, last week, Micah asked me a question about Ephesians 2. If you want to turn over there for just a second, we can kind of explain this difference between the Jews and the Gentiles that was still lasting up into the time of Christ and into the time of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh... Okay, so now Paul is talking to the Gentiles, obviously. You, you Gentiles, formerly you were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Okay, so let's get our players right. Who's the uncircumcised? Gentiles. Gentiles. Who's the circumcised group? (coughs) The Jews. According to Paul, the Jews used to refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Okay, now what was the point of their circumcision? The point of the circumcision and the law-keeping of the Jews was to make them a distinct and separate people from all the other peoples on the planet. God said so when he handed down his law to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, and told them to eat a particular way and follow particular days and keep this law He was making them a distinct and separate people from all the other people on the planet. And they naturally, being human beings, got raised up in their pride and started thinking, that's right, we're the chosen people. We're the distinct, unique people. And you Gentiles, you're dogs. And we call you the uncircumcised because we're pointing out that you don't have the covenant sign. We have the covenant sign that takes us all the way back to Abraham, our father. Therefore, we have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the land promise. We have all these covenants and promises with God, and you don't. And so Paul is writing to the Gentiles and saying, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were At that time, separate from Christ, he's the Jewish Messiah after all, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were the group that had the oracles of God, the law of God, the prophets of God, and you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. How many times have you heard me say, every covenant you find in the Bible, bar none, belongs to Israel? Every single one of them, including any covenant promise that you might be saved under. It still belongs to Israel. So here's Paul admitting that. You're strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in the temple itself, the structure of the temple in Jerusalem, there was what is called the inner court And then there was an outer court that was known as the court of the Gentiles. That was as close as the Gentiles could get to the inner court and the area where the worship was actually taking place. But they couldn't go any further than the court of the Gentiles because there was an enormous wall erected. And that wall separated Gentiles 
from the Jewish practice of religion that was going on inside the temple. That wall was known as the wall of partition because it partitioned off the Gentiles who were uncircumcised, therefore unclean, therefore they couldn't go into the temple. Well, now Paul is going to use that wall of partition as an example of what Christ did to bring Jews and Gentiles together. Up till now, all I want you to see is that the Jews and the Gentiles are at enmity with each other. They're against each other because one group is circumcised, one is uncircumcised. One is the clean group that eats right, that is kosher, that keeps the holy days. The other is unwashed, unclean Gentile dogs. And then Christ comes and he's going to unify those two groups. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one. He made a new man, a new creation out of both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. No longer are they just Jews. No longer are they just Gentiles. They are now one new man, the Christian. So the church made up of Jew and Gentile is distinct from, separate from either group, the Jews or the Gentiles. Because the Jews and the Gentiles, remember, are at enmity with each other. But Christ is going to destroy the enmity. But now in Christ Jesus, says verse 13... You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Irene, how many times have I told you what that word means? The definition that I've given it over and over is the ceasing of againstness. That's exactly how Paul is using the word here. It is the ceasing of the againstness of the Jew against the Gentile. For he himself, through his blood, he is our peace, who has made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's the wall of partition. That wall in the temple that kept Jew and Gentile distinct, Christ has symbolically broken that wall down so that there is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. And how did he do it? Well, verse 15 is going to tell us. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. If he is our peace, then his own blood abolished the enmity that used to be against Jew, against Gentile. So he tore down the dividing wall, and now there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ He has made them into one new man by abolishing in his flesh, by his death on the cross. He has abolished the enmity which the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, irene, the ceasing of againstness. How did he do it? How did he abolish the enmity? By fulfilling the law, everything we talked about last week, by fulfilling the law and the ordinances. Why is that so important? Because that's the very thing that the Jews pointed to as what made them distinct. 
We are separate from all the other peoples on the earth because we have the law of God. We have the circumcision. We have the ordinances. We have the prophets. And so because we have that law, we're not like you Gentiles and you're not like us. But when Christ satisfied the law, when he fulfilled the law and the prophets, he did away with that very thing that separated Jew from Gentile. He tore down that wall of division between them. He made the two into one. He established a new man, the Christian, and thereby established peace, which is the ceasing of againstness. You still with me? Yes. I'm still introducing. Is it interesting so far? Yes. Am I boring anybody? No. Okay. He made one new man, thus establishing peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross. His death on the cross was the means by which he reconciled Jew and Gentile into a singular body. By having put to death the enmity, the againstness, because they were warring with each other, his death his satisfaction of the law, his completion of everything that was written about him and accomplishing what he came to the planet to do, broke down the wall of partition, made one new man of the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 17 says, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. That's to Jew and to Gentile. Remember a moment ago, he described the uncircumcised as those that were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. They were the ones that were far off. They're the ones that were kept in the outer court. But now he has drawn them near because he preached peace to those who were far away and those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access By one spirit, we all have that same spirit, Jew or Gentile, the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting us is the singular spirit that gives us access to the Father. And we all have the same access, Jew or Gentile. The Jews were walking around thinking, we're the ones who have access. We're the ones who get to go to the inner court. We're the ones who have the mark. We're the ones who have the prophets. We're the... And now... Paul is writing that Jew and Gentile by the exact same spirit and by the exact same sacrifice of Christ have access to the exact same God the Father. For through him, we both have our access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in which the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit of God. Okay, do you understand what Paul just said to the Ephesians? You understand the division. Now, one of the places where that division was most obvious comes right out of Leviticus chapter 11. These are the Old Testament eating laws. And you have to understand that when Jesus is on the planet and when Paul is writing, these are the laws that the Jews are still living by 
and still eating by. And then when Jesus comes along, as we're going to look at in a moment, and starts saying that it's not what you eat, but what you say that makes you unclean, this is all part of that whole transition that I keep talking about from the old covenant to the new covenant. Then Paul comes along and says, look, some of you eat and some of you don't. So let every man be satisfied in his own mind, in his own heart, in his own conscience. And you that have the freedom to eat, don't look down on the people who don't have the same freedom. Because after all, for 1,400 years, they've been following these very rules out of Leviticus chapter 11, which say this. I'm going to start reading at Leviticus 11, verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides the hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among those animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of any of these among those which chew the cud, or among those which divide the hoof, you can't eat the camel, though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, so it's unclean to you. Likewise, the shafan, that's the NASB, it probably means a rock badger, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, so it is unclean to you. The rabbit also, though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the pig, it divides the hoof, thus making it a split hoof, but it does not chew the cud. So it's unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. Now these you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales. Those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life in the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, those are detestable to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you, and you shall not eat of their flesh or their carcass. You shall detest, and whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. This is why, to this day, you will still meet Orthodox Jews who will not eat shellfish or who will not eat pigs or pork because of these particular rules about clean and unclean animals. Now, as I said, for 1,400 years, they've been keeping these kosher laws. Not only is it important to them what animals they eat, it's also important how they kill it. And they can't seethe it in its own blood. And they can't boil it in its own mother's milk. There's a whole lot of eating rules that are in place by the time Jesus walks on the planet. Take a look at Matthew 15, for those of you who are keeping up. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees and scribes have come to Jesus, and they're making fun of him and his disciples and the way that they eat. And in response, Jesus is going to give us a really important principle. But it's a principle that is unique, that is new to Jesus. It is part of his transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. Because having read the eating rules that we just read from Leviticus 11, God has just said, those animals are unclean. You can't even touch them. They'll make you unclean. 
And therefore, you have to go through all the ceremonial washings to become ceremonially clean again. So those animals and digesting those animals could, in fact, make you unclean. And now Jesus is walking on the planet, and he says, it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean. Well, that's a unique idea. That's a brand new bit of information. Here's how it goes. Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 1, then some of the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God says, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would have been a help to you has been Corban or has been given to God. Well, then he is not to honor his father and his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles a man. It's very much like the way that Jesus said things like, you've heard it said. And then he would say, but I say. For 1,400 years, they've been following the Levitical rules. And they know that there are certain animals that they just simply can't eat, can't even touch because it will make them unclean. Jesus comes onto the planet and says, No, it's not what you put in your mouth that's going to make you unclean. Instead, new principle, it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. The disciples came and said to him, starting at verse 12, Do you know that the Pharisees were very offended when they heard that statement? Yeah, like Jesus didn't know that. (laughs) But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. So Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Explain to us what you meant. Because we've been eating kosher for 1,400 years. Explain what you mean by saying that it's not what we put in our mouth that makes us unclean because God has already said in the law, Moses has already told us in the law, that it is exactly what we put in our mouth that makes us unclean. And you just said, that's not the fact. Peter said, explain that to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And that's what defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Okay, so this is the next step in this transition about what 
Jews can eat. And those Jewish dietary laws is what separated them from the Gentiles. Are you still with me? Yes, sir. You're still following my line of thought. Mm -hmm. Peter is on a rooftop in Acts chapter 10. Even though Peter has heard Jesus say what he just said, that it's not what he puts in his mouth that makes a man unclean. It's what comes out of his mouth because that demonstrates what's in his heart. And his heart is defiled and wicked, and therefore he's going to say wicked, defiled things. And therefore that is what defiles a man or makes him unclean. Peter heard Jesus explain that. And yet, in Acts chapter 10... He's on a rooftop on the next day as they were going on their way. They were approaching the city and Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he was hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up. And an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, arguing with God, clever move, Peter. <laughs> this is after, by the way, this is after Jesus has already died, buried, resurrected. This is after Peter has already spoken at Pentecost. This is after Peter has already had the revelation of God in his life, and yet he's still trying to keep the kosher eating laws. That's all I want you to see. He says, not so, Lord. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. See, I've kept the Levitical rules. I've always eaten according to the kosher rules. And now here, even though I'm hungry, here are some unclean animals you've set before me and you've told me to rise up and kill and eat those animals. And I could never do that, even though I know what Jesus said. Even though I walked and talked with Jesus, still the tradition was so heavy, was so thick that Peter couldn't bring himself to kill and eat unclean animals. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And again, a voice came a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer call unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the air, which, by the way, means that Peter never ate any of the unclean animals. But the point, the purpose of the lesson, of course, is that Peter is about to be called to the Gentiles. And Peter still thinks the Gentiles are unclean. Even though he's been with Christ, even though he's been taught by Christ, even though he's received the Holy Spirit, even though he brought the church into existence at Pentecost, that Peter still is thinking in terms of clean and unclean. And he won't eat an unclean animal, and he won't go and preach the gospel to Gentiles because they are unclean. And so since Cornelius has sent servants to go find Peter and they're about to come to the gate and knock and Peter's going to have to be told, go with them, it's okay. So then Peter is going to go and preach to the household of Cornelius. He's still thinking in those deeply entrenched traditional ways that there are certain foods he can't eat and certain people he cannot commune with. Are you with me so far? 
Yes. Okay. So that is the context in which Paul is writing about the Jew and the Gentile and accepting the weaker one because in Rome, as I said, there's the Jewish contingent of the church, there's the Gentile contingent of the church, and there is still all of this tradition, background, history that is dividing those two groups. And Paul is arguing that in Christ, those kinds of divisions should not exist. And the way to get rid of those divisions, according to Paul, is that the people who are stronger in faith, who can eat anything, who don't have a fear of eating anything, those people ought to be willing to step down to the weaker brethren because the weaker brethren are still fighting their conscience about what they can eat. Now, Paul also wrote about this very same thing to the church at Corinth. In Corinth, there were a lot of temples to idols and there was meat that was sacrificed to these idols in these temples and then that meat was sold on the streets I think the King James says, in the shambles, in the marketplace. And there were people who could not eat that meat, new Christians, who knowing that they used to worship idols, have now come to Christ, and then they would not eat certain meats for sake of their conscience. Because they knew that that meat had been sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul has to address that with the Corinthian church. And he puts it in the same context as what we're going to see in Romans. He puts it in the context of the weaker brother. And he says, you that are strong, understand the weakness of your weaker brothers. And bear with it. Bear with the younger brother. You're you're not bringing the younger brother into your assembly so that you can argue about their opinions. You're bringing them in for their edification, for their good, and therefore, if you have to limit your own freedom for sake of your weaker brother, do that, says Paul. Here's 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read a bit of 1 Corinthians 10 and then a bit of 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to turn there. I'm starting in verse 23. Paul, knowing that Christ has satisfied the law, is able to say, the law being fulfilled and taken out of the way then, he's able to say all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not everything is edifying. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing Paul keeps saying, whether it's Romans, whether it's Philippians, whether it's Galatians, whether it's to the Corinthians, he keeps saying the same thing. Look out for one another. Look after the things of other people. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. Verse 25, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has already said, an idol is nothing, because it's an idol of nothing. There are no other gods but Yahweh, therefore the idol itself is nothing. 
So then your conscience shouldn't really be affected by whether the meat has been sacrificed to nothing. And so he's able to say, don't ask questions for your own conscience sake. Look, if you're fighting for food every day and you have to keep this mindset in order to understand what Paul is really getting at, every day in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, what was job one? Food. Food. Eat something. Every day you had to get up and find food. People did not have frigidaires. People did not have microwaves. Food was hard to come by. Clean water was hard to come by. When you found food, you ate the food. So here's Paul saying, look, if you've got some food in front of you, don't start thinking about, now where did this food come from? Was it ever sacrificed to an idol? If you've got a good T-bone steak in front of you, eat it, says Paul. Amen. There's an amen. Verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth, he argues, is the Lord's and everything it contains. So even if that animal was sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't matter. An idol is nothing and every animal belongs to God. So therefore, you're just eating something that God has already provided for you. So therefore, don't ask questions about it. The earth is the Lord's and all that the earth contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you to come over and eat and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Wow. So if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and he slaps a steak in front of you, Paul says, go ahead and eat it and don't ask questions for conscience sake. If you ask questions, where was this meat bought? Where was this meat sacrificed? What idol, what temple was it sacrificed in? Well, then you're going to start building up your own rejection in your conscience. You're going to start thinking about, well, is it appropriate or is it not appropriate to eat this? Paul says, don't ask questions. If you've got food in front of you, eat it because everything belongs to God. And God has provided you food. And after all, Jesus has told you every day when you pray to God, pray, give us this day our daily bread. So you recognize that it's God who is providing you with food. And if God has provided you food, don't ask questions for your conscience sake. But, verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this is meat that was sacrificed to idols... Well, then don't eat it. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Do you understand what Paul's getting at? You're talking to an unbeliever. He knows you're a believer. You believe in Yahweh, the creator of all things, and in Jesus Christ, his son. And he puts in front of you a piece of good-looking meat and then says to you, By the way, that was sacrificed to an idol. What's he doing? He's going to see where your conscience is at. He's going to see whether you, knowing that it was sacrificed to an idol, are still going to partake. So Paul says, look, for the sake of his conscience, don't eat it. What's he doing? Step down to the weaker brother. Because his conscience is going to be offended 
if you eat it because he knows it was sacrificed to an idol and he told you it was sacrificed to an idol so that he knows that you know that it was sacrificed to an idol. And since he and you both know that, for sake of your conscience and for sake of his unbelief and his trying to sort of trap you, just just don't eat it. Paul believes, and I have used this statement so many times and I'm going to use it again. Paul believes that genuine freedom, true freedom, is also the freedom to say no. Even though you have freedom, even though he began by saying, everything's lawful to me. That's why he can eat anything that's set before him. Because he doesn't have those kosher laws anymore. He doesn't have the Leviticus 11 laws anymore against him. So he can eat whatever is put in front of him. But this is a bigger issue to Paul than just eating food. It's a matter of a person's conscience and a weaker brother being offended or an unbeliever looking at you and your behavior and getting to ask, I thought you were a Christian. That still happens to this very day. Look, I'll put it this way. Even if, I'm not saying this is true of me, and my wife will, she'll take my side on this one, I feel. You better. Even if I were to go see an R-rated movie, which I'm not attracted to most R-rated movies, But let's say that I went to a public movie theater and I went to see an R-rated movie because I believed that I had the freedom of conscience before God to go see that particular R-rated movie. The movie is over. I'm walking out and a member of my congregation is standing there waiting to see a G-rated movie and they see me, their pastor, walk out of that R-rated movie. What does that do to your conscience? Okay, so Paul's answer would be, Don't go. Even though you may have the freedom, don't do it. Because you're going to offend someone who doesn't have the same freedom. Worse yet, let's say I walk out of the R-rated movie and there's somebody there who's been thinking about going to church. They've been thinking about coming to GCA. They've been listening to me a little bit online. They sort of know, and they're... They are the unbeliever, and they see the preacher doing something that they find questionable. Paul's answer is, for sake of your conscience and for sake of their conscience, don't do it. Now, I can do one of two things at that moment. I can argue, well, you just don't have freedom. But no, that's not the way Peter says it ought to be. He says that the people who are strong, the people who have genuine freedom, also have the freedom to say no. And that freedom to say no is for the sake of the conscience of the one who would be offended. You get that? Okay, so Paul puts it like this. If one of the unbelievers invites you And you want to go eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat that is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, listen to this, I mean not your own conscience because you yourself have the freedom that even if they said to you that sacrifice to idols and you know an idol is nothing and you know everything belongs to God, you still could have the freedom to eat it. 
But the conscience sake that Paul is emphasizing here, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, then why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews, which would be if they're eating kosher and you don't eat kosher, or to the Greeks, which would be they say this has been sacrificed to an idol and now you're eating it. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but seeking the profit of the many so that they may be saved. You get what Paul is saying? These questions of how I behave. Again, this is about orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. These questions about how we should behave are a whole lot deeper than just whether or not you eat the meat. Whether or not you keep a day of the week. Whether or not you behave yourself publicly in a way that people recognize and consider to be a Christian way of behaving. It's a whole lot bigger than that. Paul says it's about the conscience of the person who is going to be offended by your behavior. And because they are weaker and don't have the ability to climb up to where you are, you're the stronger, therefore you have to lower yourself to where they are. Because that's what genuine concern for your brethren would look like as often as Paul has said look after the things of others and not after the things of yourself consider every man as better than yourself well combine that with what we've just heard out of 1 Corinthians 10 Paul is saying that you though you have the strength though you have the freedom in Christ that you should curb your own behavior if it would in any way offend somebody who's weaker who's believing who's just coming along who doesn't have the freedom that you have. They can't get to where you are, therefore you go to where they are. You got that? Yes, sir. 1 Corinthians 12. Remember I told you that in Romans 14, Paul has said, accept one who is weaker in the faith, and I told you that means accept them into your assembly, accept them into your church group. Well, sometimes then Paul has to deal with people who just don't want to have lessers than themselves in their body. They just want the body of their church to be people just like them. And so Paul has to address that. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 20. But now there are many members, but there's one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. If you size up your physical body, your actual physical, mortal, fleshly body, if somebody came to you and said, you have to lose your eyes, or your little toe. Which one are you losing? Little toe. 
little toe. No question about it. No question about it. Absolutely. Little toe. You can have that all day long. Just don't take my eyes. Okay, why? Because your eyes seem more significant to you than your little toe does. Okay, same idea within the church body. He says there are some central members of the church body. And there are some who you would look at and think, well, these are the weaker people. These are the not like us group. And yet look at what Paul said. It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Because you know what? If you lose your little toe, guess what happens? You lose balance. And you can see yourself fall. Because you still have your eyes. So you can watch the ground coming toward you. So even though it's a weaker member, we all agreed, yes, take my toe. Because it's a weaker member. But it's still necessary. So Paul says within the church body, those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, which we deem weaker, are still necessary. Verse 23, those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we collectively bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. So they come in weak. They come in not knowing a lot about the faith. Should we then say, get out, because you're not like us? No, what he's saying is those weaker members, those what we would consider or what we might esteem as less honorable members, he says. Those are the ones that we want in the body for their own teaching and edification so that we can bring them along in the truth. And we are willing, if they are at any point weak, we're willing to reach down, to come alongside, to accommodate those who don't have the freedom of conscience that we might have. I'm still introducing, by the way. You still with me? Yes. Those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members don't have any need of that. In other words, the people who already are complete, who have their strength and their faith, We don't have to go through the extra effort of bestowing extra honor on them because they already have that. It's the people who are in need who are the people that we ought to be concentrating on. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body of the church that he gives more abundant honor to that member which lacked honor so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's really what it's all about. It's all about taking care of one another. And if one member suffers, then all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. Okay, thus ends the introduction. We can now get to Romans 14. Do you have some sense of the context in which Paul is writing? There is this conflict between the Jews and Gentiles. The conflict exists because the Jews look down on the Gentiles and the Gentiles look down on the Jews. The Gentiles have their own traditions and problems like idol worship that they had to deal with. The Jews have to deal with the background of kosher 
and keeping particular days and keeping Sabbaths and high days. Remember that Paul himself, even after he was converted, continued to go to Jerusalem on the high days. There are people who would point at Paul doing that and saying, why would Paul do that? Doesn't he have freedom? Yeah, he has the freedom to keep the day if he wants to. And he has the freedom to not keep the day if he wants to. And he has the freedom to say no because his conscience is truly free before Christ. Chapter 14, verse 1. I have about six minutes left on the clock. And I finally got to our text. Let's see how far we can get. Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his dialogue, on his opinions. One man has faith that he can eat anything. That's what we've been talking about. There's one person who has the freedom in Christ that he's not going to ask questions. He's not worried about it. He's just happy to have something to eat. And he's going to eat. But then there's one who is weak who eats vegetables only. Not saying anything about vegetarians here. But it seems to me that Paul is just saying, if you're a vegetarian, you're probably weak. I'm just pointing it out. It's biblical. Uh, it's biblical. I think meat builds mo- anyway, Especially steak. The reason that somebody would only eat vegetables, by the way, is because we just read the Levitical law. Did it say anything about vegetables? No, you can eat any vegetable you want. It just had to do with animals and fish, meat. The laws, the unclean laws, are about which animals and which fish and which seafaring creatures you eat. But you can eat any vegetables you want. So some people, in order to stay clean by their tradition, would only eat vegetables because the best way to avoid eating an unclean animal is just don't eat animals. The best way to not make yourself unclean by an unclean animal or by an animal that was sacrificed to an idol, the best way to keep yourself from letting an animal infect you is just don't eat animals. Well, Paul says that's a person with a weak conscience. One man has faith that he can eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats anything regard with contempt him who does not eat. Now, the only reason that Paul would have to write that is because obviously it was going on. Still goes on today, just in different settings and different contexts, but it's still going on today. Paul says, don't let the one with the strength to eat whatever he wants condemn the one who's weak. And that happens so often. I've seen it in my church life over and over again. And yet, genuine freedom, I keep stressing, it's the freedom to say no. If you have so much freedom, so much self-control that you can just simply not eat for the sake of the conscience of the person you're with? That's what real freedom is. If you can't help yourself, but eat to the offense of the person sitting across from you, you're not free. You're bound by whatever's put on the plate in front of you. Real freedom is the ability 
to do what's good for the other person. One man has faith that he can eat all things, but he that is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats everything regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. So one way or the other, whether you are a Gentile who eats everything that's put in front of you, whether you're a Jew that stays very kosher and so kosher, in fact, that you only eat vegetables, the enmity, the againstness, even in the eating, is going to be the one who has the freedom is likely to condemn the one who doesn't have freedom. Why aren't you like me? Why don't you have freedom? Why don't you grow up? Or the person who just eats the vegetables is likely to judge the one who can eat anything. Like, oh, look at what you're eating. Oh, you're not good. You're not right. You're not righteous. You're not clean. You're not good. Paul says within the church, quit it. Quit condemning each other and quit judging each other. In a moment, he's going to say, because you're not the judge. You're not the person that is ultimately going to condemn or justify the person who eats or doesn't eat. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you? Does that sound familiar? Earlier in this same letter, Paul said, you're going to say to me, why does God find fault seeing as how nobody has resisted his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you? Here Paul does the exact same thing. Who are you? And he puts it in the context of judging. You're judging other people because they either have freedom you don't have or they don't have the freedom you have and therefore you condemn and judge someone else and Paul's question to you is, who are you? Who died and made you judge? When did you become the judge? Don't judge, don't condemn each other. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Okay, so he's talking within the confines of the church here, which means these people, these saints that he's talking about, whether they can eat, whether they don't eat, they still belong to God. They still belong to Christ. They're still blood-bought saints, which means they are servants of Christ. And if they are servants of Christ, they belong to Christ. They belong to God. They don't belong to you, importantly. And if they're not your servant, then who are you to judge the way they serve? They're serving according to their conscience and God himself is going to accept or correct them because they belong to him. So who are you to judge another man's servant? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, to God himself, to Christ himself, to his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Oh, that's really interesting because Paul just said, first off, you think way too much of yourself. And if you're sitting in judgment on somebody else because of their freedom or lack of freedom, then you are judging somebody who actually belongs to somebody else. You're not their judge. They're not your servant. They serve God. And by the way, it is God who determines whether they stand or fall. 
And because Paul is convinced of the perseverance of the saints and of God's unending mercy, he then says, and God will make them stand. So the very person who you think is fallen, the very person that you are willing to judge, the very person you are willing to condemn is made to stand because he belongs to God, which makes you, what's that word? Wrong. Got it? You're wrong to judge, and you're wrong in your judgment. Here you are proclaiming judgments that don't belong to you, that God himself, the maker of everything, is saying just the opposite. He's justifying the very person you're condemning. Why? Because God is interested in what's going on in every man's heart and conscience. Paul argues that if you think something is a sin, if you're convinced in your own mind that something is a sin for you, but then being convinced it's sin for you, you do it anyway, it becomes sin for you. You're now guilty. Even if it wasn't something that was listed in the Bible, even if it was something that isn't listed in the law, even if it's not a a breaking of one of the commands or ordinances of God, if you're convinced that it's wrong for you to do, then you do it anyway, then you're guilty. You see, your heart, your mind, your conscience is what this is really all about. And Paul says, if you're truly, genuinely Christian and you truly, genuinely have the Spirit of God inside you, then you're going to be concerned for the heart and the conscience of the person sitting across the table from you. You're going to be concerned for the person in the church that you have to Bring along somebody who doesn't have the freedom, someone who doesn't understand the things that you understand, somebody who's weak in the faith. It is your job to bring them along in the faith, not to condemn them for their lack of faith. This whole Christianity thing is about calling people to the beauty of Christ. It's about making him out to be altogether lovely and the savior and the forgiver of broken people. Church is sanctuary. Church is the place you ought to be able to come, warts and all. With all of your brokenness, with all your heartache, with all the difficulties of your life, you ought to be able to come here knowing that you're going to find friends. You're going to find fellow saints. You're not going to find people who look for an opportunity to look down on you. They may correct you. They may reprove you. They may call you alongside the very word of God. They may instruct you. They don't condemn you. You got it? Why? Because the condemning part is left up to God. That's why Paul would write that we're not to judge and we're not to take our own vengeance Because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Okay, well then you should be worried about that. (laughs) You should be concerned about whether or not God is going to judge you. But he's the judge. And if you think you're the judge, who are you? And I can answer that question, nobody. You're nobody, you're nothing, your judgment means nothing. And I'll tell you why your judgment means nothing. Because ultimately, you don't have the ability to destroy body and soul in hell. 
That's why your judgment means nothing. The worst you can do is make somebody feel bad for an afternoon. But you don't have the ability to really, truly judge somebody. That is God's domain, and he doesn't share it with you. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Now remember I said between the Jews and the Gentiles, part of it was about eating, and then part of it was about keeping days. Remember that the Jews had been keeping feast days. They'd been keeping Sabbaths. They'd been keeping the high days. They'd been keeping Jubilee years. They'd been counting days. Their calendar was very, very important to them. To the Gentiles, none of that. None of it. In fact, they didn't even have the concept of Sunday being a separate day from every other day the way that we do now. Just every day was the same to them. And they didn't know about high days. and They didn't keep Sabbaths. And yet, one of the commandments says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the Gentiles are going, what's a Sabbath day? They're just walking around having their little Gentile lives. So now you put the Jews and the Gentiles in a room together, and you've got Jews who are saying, you still need to keep Sabbath. You still need to go to Jerusalem three times a year. You still need to be aware of the calendar dates. And the Gentiles say, we, we don't know anything about any of that. And what are you saying? You're saying now we have to keep those days just because you do? Well, that became a conflict in Rome between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul is going to answer that conflict, starting in verse 5. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own conscience. In his own mind. See, I keep saying this is really about heart, soul, mind, conscience. And Paul says, let every man be convinced in his own conscience. If you are convinced that Sabbath is the high holy day, which is Saturday, by the way. It hasn't moved to Sunday. If you are convinced that Sabbath is the day that you shouldn't work, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, you don't do any servile work, you don't make any fires, you cook your food in advance, you want to keep the Sabbath, go for it. If that's the way you worship God, then have at it. Just don't expect me to. Because I consider every day the same. With the exception of Wednesdays and Sundays, because those are the two days that I have to stand here. But every day is alike as far as the New Testament is concerned. So Paul says there are people who are still keeping days and there are people who are not keeping days. Let every man be convinced in his own mind, in his own conscience, because God knows your heart, God knows your conscience, and he knows whether you're acting according to your own mind and conscience. And if you're acting contrary to your own mind and conscience, then that becomes sin for you. So he says, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. That's right. If he's keeping Sabbath, if he's keeping a high day, it's because that's the way he worships God. And he who eats, eats anything, does so. For the Lord, because God has freedom. He has freedom in Christ. He can eat anything. He knows an idol is nothing. For he gives thanks to God before he eats it. So he recognizes that it's from God that he eats. And he who eats not, and he who eats not, 
for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. So if every man is convinced in his own conscience, then the traditions that he's going to walk by, especially the really big ones in the first century, eating and keeping days, Paul's answer to it is within the church, every man just be convinced in his own conscience, and then don't judge each other. Don't look down on each other for that. Now look, this is an interesting time to be saying these things. Because we're right on the precipice of the Christmas season. Some of you already have your decorations up. (laughs) If that is true of you, what is wrong with you? No. (laughs) Don't judge another. I understand. Be convinced in your own mind. If you're convinced that Christmas is nothing and you're not going to keep it, that'd be my group, then okay. If you're convinced that you just, you just like a tree in your house, you just like the lights, you just, you just want to keep some Christmas tradition, okay. If you invite me over and your house is fully decked out, I'm okay with that. I'm not your judge. If you're convinced in your mind that that's what you want to do, it's your house. You do what you want to do about it. If you decide that Christmas is going to be a day for you, okay, it's not for me. But you don't get to judge me and I don't get to judge you. You see how this works? In the end, let everybody be convinced in their own conscience. And that's what Paul is driving at. Last verse, verse 7, that's where we'll pick up next week. It says, for not a one of us lives for himself, and not a one of us dies for himself. In the end, this is all about our service to God in the way we care for each other. And that's the importance of all the passages that we've looked at this morning. And that's the importance of the early church coming together in unity and in acceptance and in understanding of each other. And it's something that the church has wrestled with for 2,000 years. I look for one thing. When somebody comes through the door of GCA, I know we're all different. We have different backgrounds, different upbringings. We come from different cultures. I know we have different traditions. We have different understandings. I get that. I'm looking for one thing. I'm looking for the blood of Christ. And if that's on you, you're my brother. You're my sister. And I'm going to help you. And I'm going to tolerate you if I have to. And I'm going to instruct you. And I'm going to reprove you because I love you. But I'm never going to judge you or look down on you. Because in the end, you don't answer to me. You answer to God and to his word. He has already told you what he expects of you. Therefore, Walk by that and let your own heart and your own conscience be convinced. Got it? it. Okay, now, one quick caveat. Just because Paul says there's no law against him doesn't mean there's no rules. I hear people sometimes say, well, Paul says there's no law and therefore there's no rules against the church at all. They can do whatever they want. And that leads to genuine antinomianism. The same Paul who said all that that we read this morning also laid out certain rules about behavior and about how you conduct yourself. So you have to have 
that in mind too and understand that contextually what we're talking about this morning is the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles or the differences in traditions among people. Let every man be convinced in his own mind. But if you're convinced, let's say the Bible, Old and New Testament says don't kill. If you're convinced in your own mind that killing is right, that's not what we're talking about. God is still your judge. Got that? Yes. Just had to throw that caveat in. Questions? Was that too much for one morning? Were you able to follow all that? Okay, why am I posed like this? <laughs> what is that about? Yes, sir. I went to an R-rated movie that was the King's Speech, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. But Sorry I didn't about? get a Christmas tree so they balance yeah yeah you have a very weird sense of dispensations (laughs) I also enjoyed that movie by the way and didn't get a Christmas tree (laughs) anything else comments questions All right, well, Steve's going to come up and lead you in one more hymn. Turn to hymn number 40 in your hymn book, and we are going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
For listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.